The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello, you're very welcome. I'm Mary Minahan. You're listening to a special Irish Times podcast to coincide with the Shared Island series, which has run all week in the Irish Times, looking at the future of the Republic and Northern Ireland and trying to answer questions such as how advanced is the drive for a border poll? What do changing demographics in the North tell us? And what might a shared island look like? I'm delighted to be joined by three busy colleagues and key contributors to the series. Pat Leahy, political editor, Naomi O'Leary, Brussels correspondent, and Freya McClements, Northern correspondent. Pat, the concept of a united Ireland has been the subject of many misty-eyed ballads and a fair amount of empty political rhetoric over the years. And the phrase, not in our lifetime, would have been bandied about a lot. But as you've said in the series, the changing politics and society of Northern Ireland and Ireland, and the spectre, as you call it, of Brexit, those things have edged the question of a united Ireland into the mainstream of political debate. And in your interviews with both Taoiseach and Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin and Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald. You touch on that chicken and egg element to the delivery of a referendum on Irish unity. Can you talk us through the mechanisms in the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Accords, as Nancy Pelosi likes to call them, that would allow for the calling of such a poll? Yeah, Mary, the Good Friday Agreement is quite clear up to a point on how a poll is called. It's when it appears to the British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland that a poll, uh, a border poll is likely to be passed or that a majority, I mean, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but the uh, that a majority in the North would vote for unity. It's at that point that he may call a border poll. But what the agreement is completely silent on is how he might come to that judgment. You know, so you you could have things like a series of opinion polls or specially commissioned opinion polls commissioned, uh, you know, over a period of time, say, by the uh, by the government to gauge public opinion on that, which would presumably be more than simply an, uh, you know, yes or no question. Or you could have another approach would possibly be uh, votes in the Northern Assembly, if that was to vote and consistently vote maybe over a period of time, to have uh, a border poll. But the agreement is silent on all of this. It's simply up to the Secretary of State to make a judgment that a poll would probably pass and therefore he might call it. And this is what uh, Sinn Féin has been talking about uh, in recent times. Now, in fairness, other people have been talking about it as well. We wrote about some of them in, in the series, the Belfast Solicitor, Niall Murphy has been talking about it. Mark Daly in the Senate has been talking about it. And what they've been doing is calling on the British government to say, look, what is the trigger? What is the test that the British government will apply to judge whether or not there should be a border poll? But as of now, uh, both they and indeed the Irish government, which doesn't have a role, but presumably will be consulted by London, uh, are silent on it. I'd like to reflect a little bit on the change of personality and the change of party from Varadkar to Martin in Dublin. 
Fianna Fáil, I suppose, has always had that fourth Greenfield vibe to which lip service has been richly paid over decades. Fine Gael, perhaps a more gentlemanly hands-off approach and some of that party's leaders got a little tired of answering questions about the peace process over the years. Naomi, if I can bring you in, in your contribution, you write about something former Taoiseach Enda Kenny achieved on the European stage that I think some people may forget or perhaps didn't take adequate notice of at the time in April 2017. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So what happened was there was a meeting of the remaining 27 members of the EU in Brussels. And this was the uh, first meeting that they held after then Prime Minister Theresa May formally started the negotiation process by triggering Article 50. Um, And they essentially got together to agree their negotiating principles as the joint uh, EU 27. And Enda Kenny, then Taoiseach, um, managed to get into their agreement a, a couple of lines of text, which essentially said, they acknowledged that under the Good Friday Agreement that you know Northern Ireland essentially has the option to join with the Republic and that if this was done in a peaceful and democratic way as laid out under the Good Friday Agreement, then the territory would automatically be part of the EU. So essentially there wouldn't be any need for an accession process, which other territories that want to join the EU usually go through. It was based on a precedent of East Germany joining West Germany and automatically integrating into the bloc um, back in the 90s. Um, And so this, I suppose, eases um, potentially, if there were to be a unity vote, it it eases one question for the pro side in that if if you look at the example of Scotland, for example, the question of EU membership and how that would be done is, is considered a key question, whereas it's a settled one when it comes to the North because of this text, which was unanimously agreed, agreed by all 27. It took less than a minute um, for the position to be adopted and all of the leaders applauded afterwards. And It was seen as one of the occasions on which Brexit has proved to be have a unique ability to unite the rest of the EU. At the end of 2017, Varadkar said no Irish government will ever again leave Northern nationalists and Northern Ireland behind. The context of that comment was a deal between the EU and UK in the first phase of the Brexit talks. Martin was grossly offended by what he said and asked him to withdraw. Frey, can you tell us a bit about how that comment was received in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I suppose from from a nationalist viewpoint, you know, something like that would have been seen in a very positive way, although sort of with caveats about what this might actually mean uh, in, in practice. You know, I mean, we, we, we've, we've seen over the years on all sides, you know, there can be a lot of rhetoric, but maybe not, not much um, that flows from this in, in a concrete sense. But I think there's a real difference, you know, if you look at that in 2017, and obviously that that, that was against the backdrop of, of where we were with Brexit. And I think, well, we've seen this week, we're, we're still talking about Brexit very much, you know, so those those pressure points are still there and sort of are arguably getting worse. But I think it's reflective of where the conversation has shifted between 2017 and, and 2020. The significant thing in terms of the shared Ireland unit is that, you know, we've got a scenario whereby in three years, you know, over the space of three years, the Taoiseach has obviously felt, look, you know, this is a conversation now that has to be taken on board. We've got to the stage where that conversation needs to be taken on board. And I would argue that in doing so, he's not showing support for a united Ireland, you know, now or next week, notwithstanding what we've said about sort of Fianna Fáil's uh, broader stance on that. It's more an attempt to manage that conversation, you know, and, and that does flow um, from things, from phenomena 
I suppose that we, we we've seen in the north, like Ireland's future, you know, this emergence of civic nationalism, which, which again is one of the outworkings of, of of where we are with Brexit and other sort of um, conversations about constitutional change. Freya, can I ask you about that? Actually, for those who don't know, was Varadkar's comment prompted in any way by the letters the Ireland's Future Group had started to send to him from the north around that time? And tell us about Ireland's Future Group. Who makes up that group? What do they stand for? What do they want? And what did their letters to Varadkar say? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely evidence, I suppose, of, you know, what's been termed civic nationalism uh, becoming increasingly vocal in the North and, and the pressure that they were seeking to put on people like Leo Varadkar. And they started, I think, the first letter in, in 2017 was, was 200 signatories from across the island of Ireland, which was very important because they're always making the case that, you know, this isn't just a northern issue or a northern question. You know, you know it's a question that affects all of Ireland and the diaspora as well. And and, and that was primarily around um, what they described as the denial of rights um, for the nationalist community in the north. And the people leading this, I mean, um, my colleague Jerry Moriarty had a... a big piece part of the series with Niall Murphy who, who's a very well-known Belfast solicitor he's a, he's a human human rights lawyer in Belfast but he's also the secretary of Ireland's future and he talks about denial of, of rights lack of respect for the nationalist community in the north things like people may remember the comment about crocodiles um controversial comment about crocodiles from Arlene Foster the first minister um if you feed a crocodile it'll it'll keep coming back and looking for more um in regard to sort of Sinn Féin's demands on, on the Irish uh, language act uh, which was sort of seen as very controversial, but it was also seen as sort of symptomatic of where relations were in the north at the time. And obviously, we'd had the backdrop of, of the you know the recent collapse of the assembly over issues that were, in part, to do with those kind of questions. So, so that th- this, I suppose, has been building. And we had, you know, that first letter from two hundred people last year. Um, th- there was a, a letter again in the Irish Times, and that was signed by a thousand, um, of again these civic nationalists and, and some very very high profile names. I mean, people like Adrian Dunbar. Francis Black, you know, you had academics, writers, sports people, you know, and the point I suppose that they're making and the point that Niall made in in the series is that they're arguing that, look, you know, this is where the conversation is now, you know, people are talking about Irish unity, so, so this needs to be planned for, you know, we need to see a plan, we need to have, we need to have that conversation. What's wrong with having this conversation? You, you know, you wouldn't go and buy a new car without doing some research, you wouldn't, you know, you know, so when we're talking something about something as big as this, it needs to be planned for. Pat, have you reflected at all on the contrasting approach uh, approaches of Radker and Martin when it comes to the North? What motivates those two men? God, I'm not sure I want to get into the psychoanalysis of what motivates them. But um, I, I think, you know, it's suffice to say that Varadkar was probably in the post-Brexit period, a very green sounding Fine Gael leader. I mean, that statement about, you know, uh, Taoiseach never leaving behind northern nationalists again was kind of the sort of thing that you would expect almost to hear from a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach. And interestingly, there was an echo of it in um in, in the interview I did with Michal Martin, where he recalled his first encounter with David Irvin, the late David 
uh, Irvin, at um, an event that was run at Corrymeela in 1992 during the Troubles, of course. And it was an attempt to bring together politicians from the South, politicians from the North. And there was 12 TDs, 12 unionist stroke uh, loyalist representatives. And David Irvin said to him, said to Martin at that, uh, at that encounter, he said, you, uh, your problem is you've got the Southern nationalist guilt about abandoning the North. And, and I think that struck a chord with Michal Martin. And it was, I mean, I'm not sure saying that that was the moment that he kind of reevaluated the traditional fourth greenfield attitude uh, that he and many of people in his party and outside his party uh, would have had towards the North. But uh, I, I, I think it, it certainly accelerated or fueled that process uh, of re-evaluation on Michal Martin's part to the extent that we now see him as Taoiseach not not pushing away the idea of a united Ireland, but certainly saying there are other more important things that we need to do in our relationship with unionists and with the North more broadly before we start thinking of launching headlong into a unity referendum. And it is, uh, you know, I, I suppose it contrasts with the greener rhetoric that Leo Varadkar displayed as Taoiseach, albeit that that was in a Brexit context. But I'm not saying there's been a reversal of roles between the two parties, but I think uh, certainly this is the sort of approach from a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach uh, that owes an awful lot more to uh, the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, I think, than it does to the traditional fourth greenfield rhetoric. Okay. To talk about unionists, Naomi, hopefully you'll be able to tell us what kind of status uh, unionists and the unionist position has in Europe. But first, you have a great anecdote in your contribution about how Charles Hockey became an unlikely hero in Germany at a time when Maggie Thatcher and Giulio Andreotti Il Divo had reservations about the reconciliation of East and West. Can you tell us about that? That's right. So in 1990, Ireland assumed the uh, presidency of the European Council. Um, and this was, as you say, at a time when there were reservations among other European leaders about the unification of Germany. Um, it was in the wake of the fall of the Berlin Wall. But um, Taoiseach uh, Charlie Hawhey said that, he said in the doll that essentially, as a fellow divided country, you know, they could understand any, any country's aspiration to be united again. And he ended up chairing a European Council summit in Dublin that turned out to be a landmark um, in which uh, it was agreed, essentially the, the European leaders agreed to the unification of Germany and gave it the nod. And at that time, the Chancellor of Germany, Hermit Kohl, um, said that this would never be forgotten by Germany. And to this day, if you go to the German Foreign Ministry's website, they have a page about relations with Ireland and it's actually mentioned in the second sentence that Ireland played a significant role in the unification of Germany. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's a fact, I guess. It's something that's perhaps forgotten now, but I think probably when Kenny was uh, trying to convince people to adopt the text about unification in, uh, in the future, he might not have had to uh, push too hard with Chancellor Angela Merkel to convince her. In terms of unionists, so... 
unionists have a couple of disadvantages in that they haven't, according to people I've been speaking with anyway, they haven't successfully cultivated their own links and networks among European political parties. They're seen as being insular rather than outward looking and not fully understanding the power dynamics by which European politics works, kind of over relied on London to defend their interests. And in looking forward, and now that the North has become an issue which is, you know, the subject of international debate, uh, this is potentially a disadvantage for them. They they lack international advocates and allies for their cause. Um, so they are pretty isolated. And is it fair, Naomi, to say that the EU isn't always neutral when it comes to border issues and disputes and so on? You would have examples of the EU taking a particular stance. Yeah, so um, the EU is always very careful. It has absolutely no interest in importing difficult border disputes into its internal politics in a way that's going to cause it problems. But when member states um, make a sufficient case, they can sometimes um, make an official position of, of approving for unification. And this did happen with Cyprus with a referendum in 2004, long contested issue. There's a Greek and a Turkish side of the island. And there was a negotiated deal where they would have referendums on each side of the island and the EU was persuaded to uh, formally support this as it supported the the, the whole peace and normalisation efforts. Uh, but they were actually burned for that because the Greek side of the island rejected the deal, seeing it to cede too much to the Turkish side. So um, in fact, the Sinn Féin president, Mary Milou MacDonald, sometimes uses this precedent to argue that the EU should officially back unification of Ireland but in fact it might actually give them more pause to um, be hesitant because they were burned for in, the, in, the, in that case. Overall what I would expect the EU's position to be in regards to the, the potential for a unity referendum will be first and foremost to talk about the peace to you know um, put peace first and the preservation of peace first. Everything would have to be legal um, but it would be benevolently neutral and it wouldn't stand in the way of unification. Different member states have different priorities, but across the continent, there's the idea of Irish unification is, is broadly pretty positively viewed. Um, that's crude, but it, it, it's, I think it's true. Freya, can I talk to you about the unionists you spoke to as part of the series? As you say, at least 600,000 people on this island define themselves through their preference for remaining part of the UK. And some of those who you spoke to just don't want to engage with this conversation about a shared island at all. You spoke to Jamie Bryson. You can tell listeners who are unfamiliar with him who he is. But he he talks about what he says is, is a kind of false sense of momentum around a drive towards a border pole and a united or a shared island because social media, he says, in the north is skewed towards nationalism and liberalism. Um, does that have a ring of truth for you? I, I certainly know that people I follow and respect on Twitter, they were really shocked when they woke up the day after the last general election in Britain to find that Corbyn wasn't prime minister. So does that ring true to you, what Bryson says? Yeah, there's lots in that, I suppose. I mean, I think the really interesting thing for me about the series was talking to so many people from a unionist and loyalist background and, 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 and asking them just about that conversation because there, there is 
you know, definitely a, a dialogue and that there's a sense among the nationalist community, you know, that these conversations are, are happening, that it is going on, you know, depending on who you talk to, there's almost kind of an ine- inevitability about the momentum, you know, and people will say things like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the, the unionists, you know, really, they are talking about this. They just don't want to admit it and they know what's going to happen and they know where things are going. And I mean, you know, anecdotally, you know, I, I do know that there are people from the from from the unionist community who are having these these conversations um but when when you try and, in, and engage that I, I suppose at, at a more formal level um what I was trying to figure out you know does that go further in a sense and yeah for me it was it was, it was fascinating because I, I think because of that sense of you know because of that sense on the nationalist side it can be very easy to impose that viewpoint I think when you're looking at the unionist community and, and at, at the loyalist community and I suppose if there was a theme um, for everybody I've talked to, it was about um, about that conversation and that the, they were saying things like, well, look, as far as we're concerned, this conversation isn't going on. Nobody's having this conversation. But they were also, they were setting limits to that conversation. So people like like Ian Marshall, for example, who's uh, independent unionist in, in the Shannon, you know, who worked in cross-border links and, and conversations and all kind of things, you know, He's making the point of, well, we actually need to talk about where we can cooperate on, on, on other areas, you know. So even for people like that, there is a limit to that conversation. I mean, people like um, the Reverend Mervyn Gibson, the Grand Secretary of, of the Orange Order, you know, he, he talked about, he said, you know, it's a conversation I'm not interested in if the sole agenda is a united Ireland. You know, he this great phrase, he says, if they want to try and persuade me about a united Ireland, they can knock their socks off trying to do it. But if it's the only conversation and we can't begin to talk to people about how their future lies within the United Kingdom, which is what he wants to do, then he says that's not a conversation, That that's just that's just a monologue. So really interesting there in terms of the conversation that unionism would like to have and also a reflection that unionism, and Naomi touched on this, you know, unionism isn't always best at putting its own point across. And, and you'd asked about, about Jamie Bryson. Jamie um, Jamie Bryson, somebody who would be would be well known in, in, in the North, certainly. Uh, he came to prominence during the flag protests in 2012, which was a, a row over... Uh, plans to change uh, the flying of of the union flag on official buildings in in Belfast City Council. So it would have been flown every day, and they wanted to change this to what was 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 called designated days, certain days. Um, and Jamie, I suppose, would have been a a loyalist blogger was often how how he described, and that was a, you know, at that time, you know, we 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 saw you know significant trouble on the street more trouble than there'd been in a number of years um you know loyalists i suppose voicing their opposition to this i remember on one occasion having to hide behind a wall um as myself and other media colleagues were about to get mown down in some sort of uh, confrontation between the loyalist um uh, people and, and, and the police um but he he's now sort of a, a prominent commentator on on loyalist issues and he he makes the point about you know, th- there's a difference. He he says as he would have it, social media in Northern Ireland is very hyper-liberal and Republican nationalist leaning. And he says, so it looks like there's a momentum, but there's actually not. And he says, when you go out and talk to people, I don't think it's re- reflective of reality. It's making the mistake of confusing Twitter with reality. And that's not the same thing. And I mean, I, I think absolutely, <laughs> very certainly, you know, tw- Twitter is not the same as reality. I think, I don't think he's entirely right. You know, it, it's quite clear that there is this conversation. This conversation is going on. And, and I suppose... What's interesting is where that conversation goes. And you also have, have people like um, Ian Paisley, um, Ian Paisley, you know, DUP MP for North Antrim, you know, and, and he, he talks about, you know, 
it's in our interest to make sure there's a good relationship there with, with the South, with, with Hall Martin. You know, he, he actually talks about this conversation as being an interesting and potentially an opportunity. And he talks about listening attentively to things he says about building relationships because that's in everybody's interest. So I think the clear message that, you know, there's limits to this conversation, but this is where the scope is. And I have to just throw in, um, because certainly it was the quote that got the best reaction um, as far as I saw in terms of the, of this, the series. And it was Ian Paisley as well. And he talked about Michal Martin, who, who he has met. Um, and he, he stressed when I was talking to him, he stressed, he says, I mean this in the best possible taste. And he says, and I do mean it humorously, he says, he's dour enough to be a Protestant. And I think you, you, you can't get a much, a much better compliment than that from Ian Paisley. I don't know. I haven't heard um, Michal Martin's response. Maybe Pat can put that to him at some stage. I don't know. What about that, Pat? I suppose a number of voices in the series said this was about coexisting rather than converting. And one of the things that Michal Martin said to you in his interview was that we don't always have to end up talking about the constitutional status of the island. We just have to get on with the agreement. You know, his view is that the Belfast Agreement was almost a, a pressing of a pause button. It allowed people to breathe. It allowed them to live. But as you say in your interview with Michal Martin, Sinn Féin pitched it to their supporters in a completely different way, didn't they? Yeah, there's there's quite a difference between, as I suppose you might expect, between how Michal Martin views the uh, agreement and how Sinn Féin uh, view it. Uh, Sinn Féin view it and sold it to their own supporters and to the IRA at the time as a, a, a peaceful means of achieving their objectives. And their number one objective, of course, is uh, a Northern Ireland. And this is the, I suppose, the justification for for both the armed struggle, as the Republican movement terms it, and also for the giving up of the armed struggle. So in their theology, there was uh, no alternative uh, up to the armed struggle as a means of achieving their political objectives. But when such a means became available, then the armed struggle was uh, was no longer was no longer necessary. Um, so so that Republicans, nationalists, Sinn Féin particularly view the agreement as a means to achieving a united Ireland uh, peacefully and uh, by consent, but achieving it nonetheless. Um, for Michal Martin, and he referred to this in the interview as the kind of the great genius of the agreement, was that it enabled, because it, it, it parked the constitutional question until such time as there was a majority in the North and also in the South, don't forget, which is another question uh, entirely, but we might talk about that another time. But uh, it parked the constitutional question uh, uh, and and therefore enabled or, or was supposed to facilitate the emergence of, I won't say conventional politics, but at least a politics that wasn't always about the constitutional question uh, in in the North. And I asked him, you know, in the light of his, in you know, in the light of the, the, his departure with this shared island unit and the the, the dialogue and the improved uh, relations that he wants to uh, facilitate with uh, with unionists, you know, is that an end in itself, or is that a means to an end? And it was the only time in the interview when 
he kind of, I wouldn't say he was flummoxed, but he certainly hesitated and stuttered a, a, a bit with his answer. And uh, in the end, I think what he was trying to convey was that it is an end in itself, but it can also be a means to uh, to an end. So in a way, he's trying to straddle that middle ground between the two absolutes, I think, saying that improving relations between North and South and also between Dublin and Unionists, um, because I suppose the latter is a, is a subset of the, of, uh, of the former, but it is clearly with Unionists that the, you know, the principal barriers uh, r- remain. That is an end in itself, improving those relations. But if those relations are improved, then perhaps you can get to a position where you're talking about uh, a united uh, a united Ireland by consent. So I think he wants to take things at a much more gradual and step-by-step pace, uh, whereas the alternative view in Sinn Féin uh, is that you want you push ahead, you start preparing now for a referendum and you push ahead and have that uh, referendum as soon as possible and that the Irish government should be a persuader for unity. It should put pressure on the British government uh, to, first of all, to name its criteria and then to, uh, and then to, to call the referendum. Both approaches, I think, are catered for under the, uh, under the agreement, um, but, uh, but clearly they, they, they are very different. Something that came up again and again in the series was the health service um, I suppose this is something for both Freya and Pat, uh, whether Freya was talking to nationalists such as Colm Eastwood, whether she was talking to unionists in the Fountain and Derry. There was a lot of this, we're not going to pay 50 quid to go and see the doctor. So I suppose the question is, is the shared island unit going to be looking at practical issues like that? Or is it a body that's doing research that will be kept on file in a filing cabinet what is going to happen there? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I think the really interesting thing for, for me w- was just the extent to which people talked about this on both sides, you know, and, and it's, I mean, obviously in, in, in Northern Ireland, everything can break down um, in sort of nationalist and unionist, very broadly speaking, but it, it was the one thing that actually united people on, on all sides. So you had, um, you, you know, people in, in, in the Fountain, which is the, the, the last remaining um, sort of Protestant area on the West Bank of, of the Foyle in, in Derry, um, Talking about you know the, the NHS and 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 the the benefit system in the UK and all this and something they're really proud of. But then you also had people in the bog side in Derry, you know, obviously a nationalist area, um, who who admitted to being in favour of Irish unity, but actually, well, they didn't really think it would happen sooner. They weren't that keen on it because of the NHS. And then obviously, Colin Eastwood, you know, making the point that this actually is that, that the question that need an, needs answered in all of this is not about these grand constitutional questions. It's how do you square that circle of people aren't going to pay fifty quid every time they have to go and see the doctor. People People don't want to have to pay for prescriptions, th- things like that. Um, and, and I think actually what's potentially interesting in that, when you look at that in this wider question of where these conversations are, is, well, actually, if you drill under that, people are very, very attached to the NHS. But, you know, waiting lists in the north are huge. You know, I mean, it's it's falling over. You know, there are serious, serious problems with the NHS, with providing care for people when, when they need it. Um, and people would talk about, you know, problems with the HSE as well and say things like, well, you know, 
actually, is this somewhere where there could be cross-border cooperation? Let's look at how we how we have a new health service that actually delivers for everybody that could be, you know, a free at point of delivery system like the NHS, but, you know, that, that's on an all-Ireland base. You know, and I suppose that these are some of the questions that are up for grabs that'll be teased up. Pat will know better than me whether that's all just pie in the sky and that might ever happen south of the border, you know, but undeniably, you know, you, you know, there's a lot needs to be done to the NHS in the north. So maybe this is an opportunity, goes the argument. I think it was interesting in, in both the interviews that I did with uh, Michal Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald, both of them brought up uh, the subject of, uh, of the health services north and south. And both of them said, they both said these are the sort of issues that, you know, we, Michal Martin was talking about finding out more about that the, the new unit, Shared Island Unit, would commission research on what each health service does well, what they don't do well, where there are possible synergies between the two. Mary Lou MacDonald says, you know, if you talk to both communities in the north, they rarely uh, bring up the... Uh, you know, by the tasks of politics, whatever, they rarely bring up the constitutional question. They talk about uh, the health uh, the health service. And there is, a, it, it's one of the pillars of the Sinn Féin argument in favour of unity that, uh, um, uh, that it would, uh, you know, you would have the establishment of an Irish national health service. Now, uh, I think, you know, in, in real policymaking terms, there's a long way between establishing an Irish National Health Service and delivering the sort of services north and south that people, uh, that people might be uh, content with. But I do think it's a subject that you will hear in, intertwined with the unity argument uh, over the next couple of years because it is, it's sort of shorthand for what... Sinn Féin believe would be, you know, the the benefits of and the synergies of an All-Ireland state. And, you know, for people who are more cautious, I suppose, like Michal Martin, it's uh, the health service is an example of how you need to talk about the nuts and bolts of how unity would work before you start uh, talking about referendums. I think we'd need to touch on the whole demographics issue, although it's complicated. I mean, we've we've used that kind of shorthand of people not wanting to pay 50 quid to go to the doctor. But of course, the reality is that they can't afford it in many circumstances. And I think in particular, uh, the economic disadvantage of loyalist youth is something that probably isn't talked enough about in the Republic. And if you look at the low level of school completion and broader problems then of poverty, disadvantage and economic stagnation, and that, I suppose, contrasts with the kind of risen people concept when you look at the the numbers of Catholic stroke nationalists attending university and so on. What is the level of awareness of that? Naomi, I'd love to bring you back in on this if you've had an opportunity to reflect on this at all. Do you think is Europe watching the demographics of Northern Ireland very, very closely? And And has Europe considered what a shared island might look like? Is it just simply a united Ireland or is it something more complex than that? I think that it wasn't something that was particularly on people's radar prior to Brexit but as soon as the referendum passed the there was a noticeable sea change in conversations in Ireland and also in the EU. I mean it was one of the first things that came up uh, it was one of the first things that just came to people's minds well wouldn't it be a logical conclusion if there, if there wasn't a border at all across the island um, and that came from all 
all parts. I mean, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, openly said it quite bluntly recently that unity would solve a lot of problems, but it wasn't up to France. Um, so it's uh, it's changed the conversation because the now the unification issue doesn't seem like a kind of romantic aspiration so much as a pragmatic solution uh, to one of an, an issue which has consumed untold hours of manpower um, across the EU since the Brexit referendum, which is trying to solve the puzzle of how do you have Brexit with no um, border across the island. Um, alongside this grand rehearsal of the uh, history and current politics of the island that Brexit has provoked across the continent, uh, there has been an increased awareness of you know, the reality of the North and demographic change is one of those points. Um, deprivation it it's there isn't a like a, it's not that everybody now in the eu is uh you know completely up to date on all of these issues but there's certainly more of a familiarity than there was before um and i think certainly one of the things that that wasn't contentious between the uk and eu was continuing peace funding at least um for the next uh, little while let's say at least in the medium term and i think that there is an a sense of ownership, I suppose, or responsibility over furthering cooperation and and peace uh, along the border regions. Um, but I think primarily for all of this, it is going to be up to the Irish government to be um, the first voice that the EU listens to on these issues. Um, like I mentioned, the unionists don't really have advocates. And oddly enough, it might actually be up to the the Dublin government to kind of explain the complexity and even the unionist position. And I think the when it comes to policymaking in the future uh, regarding the potential breakup of the UK, which we should probably talk about as well if, if Scotland goes, um, essentially it will be handled uh, within the EU's foreign service. And there will be, you know, a particular officer monitoring this issue. But Ireland will have to be an important voice in in advocating for its interests, that the EU will listen to. We won't adopt the Irish position wholesale. All of the member states will have their unique relations to manage with Britain. Um, but in, in the wake of Brexit, I think a lot has changed on that matter. I suppose we should wrap up, Freya. I wanted to come to you. I think probably a weakness, if we're honest, in the series was we maybe didn't talk enough about the big chunk of people in Northern Ireland who don't identify as Catholic stroke nationalist or Protestant stroke unionist. Um, who are these people? How influential will they be in future? And who are they voting for? Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually where, where the key um, to all of this lies, certainly in terms of any kind of potential unity referendum. Um, you know, in, in the North, we've had a huge number of elections in, in, in recent times. And, and one of the things we saw last year was, was just the, the, with the alliance um, vote building and building and building. So by the time you get to the Westminster election last December, you know, Alliance took 17% of the vote, you know, so that's, you know, pretty much roughly a fifth, you know, um, that you've got sitting there, you know, that, that put them into third place, you, you know, behind the DUP and and and, and Sinn Féin. And, and, you know, in, in part, it's because Alliance has become, you know, they were always sort of the compromise position, if, if you like, um, but in part, it's because they, they became, if you like, the home of sort of liberal pro-Romain unionists who didn't feel that there was a place for them within the traditional unionist parties, uh, but but not not exclusively. There would be people from a, from a Catholic nationalist background in, in there too. And I mean, I just think, you know, if we're talking about 50 plus one 
in, in a unity referendum. Um, and you can look at so many polls and, and, and stats, you know, that, that sort of just put it over the line one way here, one way there. You know, 17 percent is, is an awful lot, a lot of people, you know. So, so I think that's actually where the debate and where the answer to this question lies. And it feeds into that that argument that's made by unionists as well, that actually the way to save the union, you know, if you want to save the union, what you need to do is you need to make the union more attractive. You need to make the unionist parties more attractive to that 17%. Um, so yeah, that's where I think we need to um, keep our focus. I, I think just to come in on that briefly, Mary, if I can, that the that the, the middle, the uh, we won't call it the unaligned middle, but the new middle, which is the fastest growing part of the North politically. Um, Sinn Féin are certainly correct that the unionist majority, and they say this all the time, that the unionist majority is going or the unionist majority is gone. And that may be true, but it doesn't follow that it is being replaced by um, either a, a Catholic or nationalist majority or a majority of people in favour of uh, of Northern Ireland. And, you know, there's dozens of polls on this and polls are only snapshots. And, you know, to get a real, I think, read on where public opinion is on this, you'd need to do a very, very detailed piece of public opinion research. But for what it's worth, the last time that the Irish Times um, polled this in the North, and we did parallel North and uh, South polls uh, last, last year. And in the North, we asked simple question, if there was a referendum on unity with the Republic, would you vote yes for unity or, or no against? So that was 45, 32 uh, against. Now I know some polls have put it more closely uh, than that. But what really interested me in that poll was when you broke it down between Catholic, uh, people who did, identified as Catholic, people who identified as Protestant, there was, of course, a majority amongst Catholics in favour of uh, a united Ireland, but not as overwhelming a one as you might think. 58% of Catholics said that they would vote yes. 18% said they would vote no. 24% said they don't know. So I don't think it follows that the declining number of Protestants will automatically deliver a united Ireland, which is what lots of nationalists and Republicans have hoped for over the years. I think that if Sinn Féin if Republicans, if nationalists are going to win uh, a referendum in the North whenever it comes, they will have to win the argument for a united Ireland on its merits. A tribal headcount won't deliver it for them. So we've managed to come to the end of our podcast without mentioning COVID, which I think, like Brexit, is an external factor that no one saw coming and may act like an accelerator towards a shared island I'll conclude with the words of our colleague Fintan O'Toole writing in October 2019. We are now witnessing a sudden and jerky acceleration in what was meant to be a slow and careful reshaping of the political architecture of these islands. We had better recognise it and try to deal with it before the poison of betrayal and abandonment enters the groundwater. Hard to argue with that. That's all for now. Thanks to Pat Leahy, Naomi O'Leary and Freya McClements. My thanks to producer Declan Conlon. If you'd like to support this podcast and the Irish Times, you can do so by subscribing to the Irish Times at irishtimes.com forward slash inside. By using that link, you let us know that a listener to the Inside Politics podcast has subscribed and that directly helps the podcast. And you can get a subscription for as little as one euro for the first month. 
That link again is irishtimes.com forward slash inside. You can tweet me at Minahan Mary. Many thanks for listening and goodbye for now.